Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the joyful burdens of uh, serving in the same congregation as long as I have been here at St. Andrew is that I'm not exactly sure, but I think this is about the eighth time I have preached on the parable of the prodigal son uh, from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which may make some of you wonder what I'm still doing here. Uh, but in fact, last year, our entire series of Lenten midweek sermons, sermons was based on that one story from the Gospel of Luke, with one week uh, focusing on the younger brother, another week the father, another week the older brother, so that today I thought, well, maybe I should just preach on the fatted calf, you know, or maybe the signet ring, or maybe do a whole series on jewelry in the Bible. But the good news is that uh, even though not all of you were here for all seven of those uh, other sermons, or at least not all of them, it's also true that every time you reread the parable of the prodigal son, it can touch your life in a way that is very different than the last time that you read it, depending on how the Spirit's working and what's going on in your life. Either way, this is one of the most magnificent stories that you will ever find in the pages of Scripture or anywhere else in history for that matter. It is the gospel on steroids. And believe it or not, uh, there is actually something that jumped out at me that I saw like never before or never really appreciated during those previous seven sermons. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but first let me just kind of reset the stage by putting this great story from the very middle of the Gospel of Luke into the context of first century Middle Eastern history, and then talking a little bit about the people to whom this uh, story was originally told in a way that I hope will kind of enhance and magnify your understanding and appreciation of the parable of the prodigal son this time around. For example, you know, you might think that an adult child asking his or her parent for a large amount of money is routine in our 21st century culture and society, or even asking for an inheritance is, is somewhere between, you know, completely acceptable and mildly inappropriate. In fact, I know that this has happened. But in the context of first century Middle Eastern history, for a person to ask the father for their inheritance before the death of the father was tantamount to saying to the father, you are dead to me. And our relationship is over. And it would have also entitled that father, again in the context of the culture of that time, to strike the son with the back of his left hand and expel him from the house forever just for making the request. But the father in Jesus' story doesn't do that. He grants the son's request, even though the son's request actually expresses rejection of the father in favor of the father's money, after which he squanders that money and he wastes it away until he has nothing left. And so the context of the, of the culture in which that story was told really helps to magnify not only the selfishness of the son, but the rejection of the son of the father, even though the father does not reject the son. 
And then when you get to the back end of the story, when the, the prodigal son does come home and the father throws him this lavish, extravagant uh, party, and the older son is out in the fields. He has been dutiful and responsible with everything all those years. And, and he hears the music and, and the dancing coming from the house. And, and a slave tells him that his father has killed the fatted calf in celebration of his brother's return. The older brother becomes furious and he rails against the father. Which seems logical to me. But for Jesus' listeners, it was an even more stunning detail. And that's because in first century Middle Eastern culture, there were only two reasons that a wealthy man would kill a fatted calf. One is if the king was coming to visit, and the other was for the wedding of the elder son. And now here is that son out in the fields, hearing the music, learning that the fatted calf has been killed and saying to himself, the king is not here and I'm not getting married. So that once again, the, the context of the story magnifies not only the selfishness and the rejection of the younger brother, but also the rage and anger and resentment of the older brother. The other thing I want to point out to those of you who haven't heard the other seven sermons, uh, is the people to whom this story was made up and told by Jesus. And at the beginning of the passage, we learn that there are basically two groups in the congregation, one of which includes sinners and tax collectors. These are irreligious people who are living their lives far away from God. In fact, tax collectors were considered to be traitors to both God and country because they were working for the pagan Romans and the occupying forces of their land. And yet Luke tells us that they had come to listen to Jesus. The other group includes Pharisees and scribes. Now, uh, the Pharisees were the keepers of a ritual tradition and religious law, and there were literally thousands of them scattered throughout the land. Scribes were the leaders of the Pharisees, and uh, they were also members of one of the courts or the Sanhedrin, meaning uh, that there were far fewer of them, maybe just 71 in the great uh, Sanhedrin. They were there not just to listen to Jesus, but to challenge Jesus, to oppose Jesus, to object to the fact that Jesus was associating with the members of group number one. And so last week I mentioned that when Jesus preached in parables, he often told these stories that included characters who would represent the actual people that he was talking to, the people out in the congregation, so that in this case, uh, the younger brother represents the sinners and the tax collectors who were there, the people who were living off the blessings of God, but they were not acknowledging God because they have wandered away from God. The older brother in this story represents the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who were self-righteous and who were angry and resentful that this fellow, as they refer to Jesus, is actually eating with sinners. And so at the end of the day, there's a place for everybody in the congregation in the story that Jesus tells. And the father in the story represents, obviously, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And the one thing that the father does that always jumps out at me every single time that I read this parable and is ultimately, you know, the, the climactic moment in the story is when the father sees the son off in the distance and he leaves the house and he runs on the road to embrace his son, to kiss him, to welcome him, which certainly would be, you know, a great climactic moment for our own movie-going Netflix 21st century sensibilities. But again, to Jesus' listeners, it was another stunning detail for a reason that is not even stated in the story, but that they would have certainly known, and that is in the in first century Middle Eastern culture. Great men did not run. Slaves ran. Thieves ran. People who were motivated by fear ran. Great men did not run. Except for this father. In the story that Jesus told, he runs on the road. He doesn't even care if all the villagers see him. Why? Because he cannot help it. He is so overwhelmed with joy over the fact that this lost son is not only alive to him again, but that he, the father, is no longer dead to the son. And then later on, when the extravagant, overwhelming, lavish party is underway and the music and the dancing are really in full swing, even then the father leaves the house, not to go out onto the road, but to go out into the field to find the other son and to say to him, I love you just the same. We are always together. Everything that I have is yours. You see what's going on here? He says, we have to celebrate. He's telling the sinners and the tax collectors and the younger brothers in the congregation that no matter how far away you might wander from God, you can always come back. You can always find a father's welcome. He's telling the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the elder brothers of this world that they also have a place in the Father's house and in his celebration because of the Father's love for him. He's telling all of God's children that they have a place in the celebration, in the family, and in the household of grace. So that, you know, in the end, I mean, we you know, call this parable the prodigal son. But quite frankly, you know, it's really a story about two sons who are lost in two very different ways. And the father who loves both of them and seeks to gather them into the celebration, into the house of grace, to welcome us to a feast that is like a marriage fit for a king. Now there's one other thing that goes on uh, in this story, and this is the thing that I saw for the first time, or at least like never before, when I was studying and rereading this parable for sermon number eight or whatever this is. And it has to do with the fact that in this story there are two confessions. Two times when the younger brother makes his confession, and the first time he is thinking about what he will say to his father when he goes back to him. And he says, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And that third statement, treat me as one of your hired hands, uh, basically means, you know, I will earn my way back to you. I will live out in the village and not in the house. I will work hard until every single penny of the uh, inheritance has been fully repaid. The Pharisees who were there probably loved that part of the story. But then when the real confession comes later, it happens after the father has run down the road to embrace his child, to greet him, to kiss him, to welcome him home. And he makes his confession and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he does not say the next sentence. He does not say, treat me as one of your hired hands. Why? Why isn't it there? Is it because the father's already welcomed the son, so he doesn't need to earn his way back to the father? Precisely. Yes. That is why. And that's what makes that second confession the real confession. That's what makes it true repentance. When you know that there's nothing that you have to do, that there, there's nothing you can do to earn the Father's love because the Father already loves you. Not because you, know, you haven't wandered away or you haven't been judgmental or self-righteous. He loves you because you are his child. This is a story of the gospel on steroids. For the prodigal daughters and sons, and younger brothers of this world, for the older brothers and sisters of this world, for all of God's children. And what's really interesting about the parable is that in the end it really doesn't resolve. Jesus does not tell us whether the older brother actually comes to the party, even though the father, father says to him, you know, you're coming to the party or, or aren't you? We don't know. And you can imagine Jesus telling the story and just kind of leaving the Pharisees to think about that for themselves. Well, the good news is that we know that there were actually some Pharisees, real-life Pharisees, who did come to the party. Nicodemus, we meet him in the Gospel of John. He was a Pharisee, but he came to the party. Joseph of Arimathea, the one who provided a place for the burial of Jesus, he was a Pharisee. He came to the party. And then what was that other guy's name? Paul. Yeah, he was a Pharisee. And he came to the party. In fact, that guy knows how to take the party with him in order to turn the whole world upside down. The season of Lent and this wonderful story are about cultivating our faith in the overwhelming, overpowering grace of God. And by its power, letting go of self-righteousness, of judgment, of resentment, of jealousy, if the shoe fits, but also letting go of your sins, of your past, of all your screw-ups, 
of all of those times when, you know, you wasted or you ignored the Father's blessings, or maybe you just lived off those blessings without acknowledging the Father in your life. And so the, the question today is, you know, who are you in this story? Are you the younger brother, you know? You've been living off the blessings of God without coming back to acknowledge the Father. You've been wandering away from Him. Or are you the older brother and you are just so wrapped up in judgment and, and in self-righteousness that you look down on the sinners and the younger brothers of this world? You know, my answer is yes, yes. But there are Pharisees in this world who do come back to him. This story is about cultivating the grace that makes it possible to return home to God. This is about listening to the words of Jesus who says that there is joy in the presence of the angels over every sinner who repents, meaning that you make God happy whenever you come home to him. And whenever you don't, it makes him sad. This is about hearing the music of faith and of celebration and knowing that no matter how far away you might have wandered, there is a welcome for you in the Father's house. There is a feast of love that is waiting for you this very day in this house right here, right now. This is about taking the grace of God out onto the road where all the villagers can see it and its power to transform all kinds of relationships for time and for eternity. A lot of people know that there is still a picture that hangs in the foyer of our house where we live, right next to the front door. It is a large framed print of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it hangs there. It's been there for 20 years. For all of us to see as we go out that door and we hit the road and we take the field every day, it's there for us to see every night when we come home at the end of the day. It's there when you go up to bed at night. It's there when you come down the steps in the morning. It's there to tell me that God loves me. Not because I haven't wandered away, not because I've always acted like the child of God he wants me to be, but simply because I'm his child and you're his child. And he doesn't want a house, a celebration, or a church without you in it. In fact, I even looked up the word prodigal in the dictionary simple thing to do, and found that it actually has two meanings, believe it or not. Uh, the first meaning is uh, an adjective. A prodigal is wasteful or reckless. But thanks to this story, in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, there's a second meaning, and it's a noun. A prodigal is now defined as one who returns. I thank God that you have returned here to his house today. And I pray that this house will always be a place of welcome and reconciliation for you and for everybody who comes through these doors and then takes the party with us, hits the road with the grace of Jesus for all the villagers to see 
so that by his grace we can represent that father and turn the whole world upside down. Welcome home. Welcome to the party. Welcome to God. Amen. The peace of God who passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to the day of everlasting life. Amen. <laughs>